Hi pals, this is Blaine Hill with the podcast for the Journey Sunday School class at Lake Murray Presbyterian Church in Chapin, South Carolina. This is for the class that meets on September 29th of 2019. We're continuing in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in the 5th through the 7th chapters of the Gospel according to Matthew. In the last few weeks, we read the series of blessings that Jesus announces as the opening of his sermon. For example, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We also heard Jesus tell us that we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Keep in mind that Jesus is announcing his Father's goodness and grace to us, a grace that gives meaning, purpose, and shape to our life. God's work in Jesus blesses us and calls us to a a new way of life. Here's a little summary for our class on Sunday the 29th. Since all of Jesus' actions and teachings show us that he is not interested in mere rule-keeping righteousness, we find that he is working for restoration and that he places a high demand on those who follow him. We might say a holy calling instead of a high demand. But hey, let's um, let's read in Matthew. This is in the fifth chapter. It's verses 17 through 20. By the way, uh, before I read, I should tell you that um, I'll put uh, references for anything in this talk. I'll try to put them in the show notes for this podcast, uh, or at least on my website, Blaine Hill. Net. Enough of me. Let's hear from God's Word. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you my little uh, summary thought for our lesson today. Since all of Jesus' actions and teachings show us that he is not interested in mere rule-keeping righteousness, we find that he is working for restoration and that he places high demands, a holy calling, on those who follow him. So if we dive into the passage, we might start with a really, really basic question. What is Jesus' relationship to the law and to the prophets? Law and prophets is kind of a, a, a code for scripture, really. It means all of scripture. Um, and he, he tells us simply, look, I have not come to abolish the law. And sometimes Christians, we think, well, Jesus has allowed us not to have to consider the Old Testament. And, and clearly Jesus says, no, that's not it. I have not come to abolish the law. Okay, so what has he come to do? He's come to fulfill it. God's 
law and the prophets have a purpose. They've always had a purpose. God has been driving uh, creation towards uh, restoration, towards salvation, towards uh, fulfillment. Um, and Jesus is, is, is taking all of that promise of scripture and he's going to fulfill it. Another way to think about it is he's going to accomplish and bring uh, to its final end the what scripture, what law and prophets are for. Um, so it's very important that we, we say, hey, we're, Jesus is not setting aside the law and the prophets, scripture. He's not setting aside Old Testament. Um, but he is not simply repeating it and reciting it and refreshing it. He is bringing, he has brought Scripture to its proper purpose. And well, we're going to explore what that means. First, I, I want to talk a little bit, though. I want to share some ways that Christians have found it helpful to think about the law. The, the really candid truth is, if we read in the Old Testament law, in the Hebrew Scriptures, we can find them a little baffling. But there are a couple ways that it's very helpful to think about them. And this is uh, some pretty conventional teaching. It's my outline of something you can find in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Nothing original here. One way to think about the law is that it is a moral law. Moral law. Not amoral law, but it is moral law. And what that means, it teaches us right from wrong. And this is pretty simple. You shouldn't steal stuff. Uh, you shouldn't bear false witness. Don't murder. You should respect your parents. And that's... Uh, easy to understand. We need a day of rest and to allow others to rest. Rest. Ten Commandments stuff to start with. Um, a little more fine detail. Don't move the boundary markers of property. Um, that's just another way of stealing property. So uh, the law can be moral. It teaches us morally. Another way that the law of the Old Testament of Hebrew Scripture function was ceremonially. That's a hard word to say. The law functions in ceremony. Uh, so if you read in the Hebrew scripture, you can read a description of the tabernacle, of the uh, kinds of instruments and appliances and tools that were put into the temple. Um, and those are describing the ceremonial law um, as well. Uh, another way that uh, we see the ceremonial law is what can and cannot be eaten in the Old Testament. Obvious one is uh, the Jewish people still don't eat pork because they're observing uh, that part of Scripture. But for Christians, we do eat pork, we eat shellfish, and that's not because we ignore uh, the ceremonial law. It's because we believe whatever requirements for Gentiles uh, uh, for ceremonial law there might be, Jesus has already fulfilled that. This is actually the issue that the, the Apostle Paul wrestled with in the church in Galatia, the issue there was circumcision as much or more than food. And also the early church in the book of Acts dealt with this challenge as well. Uh, but we can we, we recognize that the ceremonial law points us to purity, um, a purity uh, that uh, Jesus has fulfilled. So there's a moral law, and then there's ceremonial law. And there's also judicial law, or civil law is probably an easier way to think about it. And um, obviously we need civil law as well uh, to help us regulate society. You have to stop at stop signs and stop at the red light and observe the speed limit. But we don't look for, for Hebrew scripture for the Bible to provide us 
with that kind of law. An even more um, granular example that really matters are building codes. Recently, I was speaking to uh, a mission coordinator about helping after the hurricanes in the Bahamas this summer. And uh, one of the things they're working on is making sure they update the building codes for uh, the islands. They don't want to build again and then have another terrible hurricane come and destroy so many buildings. Well, believe it or not, um, the Old Testament has uh, not exactly building codes, but it does directly deal, deal with issues of, of construction and how to deal with something like mold in a building. I hope I haven't gotten too far afield there, but uh, we can clearly understand that some of the Old Testament laws are judicial. Uh, they're simply rules. They they um, not aren't necessarily moral or ceremonial, uh, but uh, they they guide us on the rules of society, and so are very important. There's a another whole different way that you can think about the law, and this will give you a um, uh, a, a fancy word paradigmatic. Um, the law is not needed to create works of salvation, but it's really very still useful. It is still very useful to inform us of God's will. Uh, it can show us sin in our life and convict us of sin. Uh, it can show us our need for Christ. It can show us the blessings of obedience and show us how to live. Back to that fancy word paradigmatic. Um, what, what That's a, just a one word saying of the law may not apply directly to our life, but we can still get a principle from the law. Here's an example. Uh, in the Old Testament, we read that uh, God instructs his people not to double harvest their olive trees, to go and harvest their olive groves, and then go back later and reharvest. And the idea there is that poor people could go behind the owner of the harvest of the olive grove and harvest from those trees and then have access to food and I suppose to barter or trade with the, the remnants of the olive uh, olive grove. And the idea there is, is, you know, maximizing and squeezing every last drop of opportunity uh, uh, means that there's no slack left in the system for people who are needy. Um, and so that's a paradigm, an idea we can take from the law. Well, uh, let's get back to our passage again. Uh, where we left off, we asked, what is Jesus' relationship to the law and the prophets? And he said, first, he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And I suggested that uh, what, what that means is he is going to accomplish the purpose of the law and the prophets that God has from uh, the big, before creation been working uh, in one direction to be at peace with his creation, and Jesus is going to fulfill that. Now, there's something very um, important as we move along. Uh, we can see Jesus says that um, whoever breaks uh, one of the least of the commandments uh, will be called least in the kingdom, and whoever does these and teaches them, that's an important point, um, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I want to point out, um, I think Jesus is maybe playing with words a little bit. Not playing with words, but um, we should remember, Jesus talks a lot about the least and the greatest, as did uh, uh, his cousin John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist came and said, uh, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one 
I'm sorry, this is Jesus talking about John the Baptist. Truly, I tell you, though among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Huh, so Jesus, Jesus is really working those words least and greatest. He talks about them uh, quite a bit. Later on, Jesus will... Um, well, when, when he is asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Um, his, this is how he responds. He called a child whom he put among them and said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes hum- humble like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So whoever who is most the most humble, the least, is the greatest. And then maybe most importantly, uh, Jesus uh, has, in a couple of places, he, he really flips things upside down. He says, Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for the vineyard. If you don't know the story, it's in Matthew 20. Basically, the landowner goes out and at first light, he hires people to work in the vineyard. And then at about 9 o'clock, hires some more people. And then at noon, hires some more people. And then at 5 o'clock, just as the, as the sun is getting close to the sky, uh, setting, uh, that is to say, Hire some more people. Well, at the end of the day, um, the the vineyard owner says to the people that were hired at five o'clock, he says, come on, let me pay you first. And he pays them a full day's wages. And then the people who were coming later, uh, uh, after those, uh, think, hey, we worked all day. We're going to get paid even more. And then he pays them the same amount, a full, full, day, full day's wage. Well, they get really mad. And the landowner says, hey, why are you so upset? Why are you so envious? Because I decide to be generous. And then Jesus says it again. So the last will be first and the first will be last. All of this is to say, as Jesus is telling us, those who uh, heed his and teach his commands will be greatest. We should keep in mind, uh, Jesus um, is often, often undermining our sense of what's most important. I think this is a really hard teaching for us to understand. And maybe it was always very challenging, but I think it's particularly difficult um, for us today. And, and I'll tell you why. In modern American life, for gosh, maybe all of America, but in modern American life for sure, we often think about the average and the middle. So much of American politics and culture is about the middle class. Think of the sitcom. I mean, that's about the kind of average and Amer- average American family, whatever that might actually mean. Or, <coughs> excuse me, we might think um, about the idea of the the American dream. Uh, 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 Paul Cantor has a book called. I've heard an interview with him with Bill Crystal, and he talks about his book, Pop Culture and the Dark Side of the American American Dream. And he points out the greatness of the American dream is that anybody can make it in America. And um, the idea here is, is 
that we don't have an aristocracy in America. We are interested in uh, the middle of our culture. Um, so how does this relate to Jesus? Well, I think it relates to Jesus in this way. Jesus is so often talking about the other ends of the spectrum. He is talking about the most lowly and the most high. So he is willing to reach out and touch a leper who was uh, considered to be unclean, and he is willing to uh, help a Roman centurion who had great power in that day. Uh, so Jesus is paying attention to those who are high and low, perhaps because that's what that society in his day consisted of. At any rate, it's, it's hard for us to think about uh, the least and the greatest. It's quite challenging. Well, let's get back to our passage. Um, and I want us to, to think about this passage in relationship to the rest or the next part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is, he talks about his relationship to the law and the prophets, and then he's going to give uh, six teachings right in a row about different parts of human life. He's going to talk about anger and adultery and divorce, oaths, uh, retaliation, and how we deal with our enemies. Um, so it, it's really, uh, he's just going to hit on very concrete, immediate life problems in various forms. And I think uh, our passage today, where he talks about uh, the Law and the Prophets, teaching on, on how to live life, gives us a framework. So I'm going to give you that framework. That framework is the person of Jesus. He gives us a theology, how we think about God. He's going to talk about ethics and then eternity. So you can think of it as person, theology, ethics, eternity. <coughs> Excuse me. So, let's start with the person of Jesus. Consider how amazing it is that Jesus sets up the question of Scripture in reference to himself. Jesus defines Scripture in relationship to himself. He is not setting it aside, but he's not simply affirming it. He's not simply affirming it. He is the one to bring Scripture to its proper point and its proper end. Uh, this week in our midweek service, we sang uh, an old hymn called Just Give Me Jesus. And this is what is he, Jesus is encouraging us to... St he is the starting point for thinking about Scripture. If we want to understand Scripture, it's not an idea, it's not a philosophy, but a person that we start with. For example, um, the first thing that Jesus does after he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, is to heal a leper. And he does that by touching the leper. Um, the leper says to him, leprosy was, is a terrible disease, a, a rotting skin disorder, and the leper would not have been able to be a part of normal society or to go in the temple. So the leper cries out to Jesus, if you choose, you can make me well. And Jesus says, I do choose. His healing is a personal act, and it's a decision by Jesus. And then he touches the leper, and he's healed. And now, according to the law, the law and the prophets, that act should make Jesus ceremonially unclean. But in fact, the opposite happens. Jesus makes the leper clean and restores the man in his ability to be with his neighbors, to be with his family, and to go into the temple. 
He takes the last and makes him first in a way. To understand the kingdom of heaven and to know how to live life well. So we start with the person of Jesus, the Son of God. Uh, I have not come to abolish the law or, pro- or prophets, but to fulfill them. And so to understand the law and prophets, we start with the person of Jesus. So then let's move on from person to theology, and then we'll go to ethics. Theology, um, Jesus, that's the 18th verse. He says, I tell you until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus set scripture in relationship to God's plan and purpose. God has not abandoned his work within creation. And in fact, it is the person of Jesus where God is completing his work of righteousness, of justice, and restoration. So Jesus, in thinking about the law, says, hey, we should think about the law in relationship to God and his Father and God's plan for creation. So we have the person of Jesus. We have theology. How does the law relate to the person, to God himself? And then ethics. That's the 19th verse. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right. So Jesus embeds scripture into the life of the disciples. The law and prophets show us how we're supposed to live. Uh, and Jesus embeds scripture into the life, not only of the disciples, but into the life of the Christian community, both by action and by teaching. So we have the person of Jesus, and then we have theology, now we have ethics, that, that uh, our behavior is to be shaped and formed by scripture. And But he doesn't leave it just there. Jesus points us beyond the ethics uh, and or moment of our own lives. He points us to eternity. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, those are strong words. But Jesus is attaching our conduct to eternity and sets our goal far beyond ourselves and our own power. What can be more absurd than to say mortals could generate for themselves anything of heaven. And yet Jesus attaches our way of life somehow to the kingdom of heaven. He's saying that in him, remember it starts with Jesus, in him he is leading us towards the kingdom of heaven. Well, that seems a little abstract maybe, uh, this framework I've given you, uh, the person of Jesus, theology, ethics, and then eternity. So what I'd like to do is look at the first uh, real topic that Jesus takes up um, when he talks about anger. And uh, I don't know if we'll have time today to do that. We may do that in, in our next lesson. Um, but um, why don't you take that with you? Think about the person of Jesus. And as you are faced with decisions and choices, think about this in relationship to Jesus and how he is setting the details of your life in relationship to the guidance of the law and the prophets so that you're making actual decisions, teaching other people. Maybe it's just your children or life with a uh, loved one, but making your actual decisions in life in relationship to the person of Jesus and how God's law uh, is something he is fulfilling in Jesus. That's the theology piece and then ethics, 
uh, the decisions you make. And to do so in light of the fact that Jesus is leading you to the kingdom of heaven. That the, your life and your, um, the material part of your life is connected to what God is doing into eternity. Not in some rule-keeping righteousness where you have to tot up enough points. But knowing that the decisions, decisions that you make um, to be reconciled in the face of anger, uh, to be faithful to your uh, relationships, and to hold fast to those who depend on you, uh, and to seek to be reconciled, that as you make those decision, decisions, you are participating uh, in God's kingdom already. Jesus' disciples aren't meant to be satisfied with the minimally acceptable amount. Jesus means for us to be oriented to the standards, the goals of the kingdom of heaven. And so we can lift our, our attention and our goals higher than we might otherwise expect. Well, I hope God blesses you with the hearing of his word. I'm going to read through the passage once again. And then I'm going to read through the passage that we'll look at next week, the the very next one in Scripture. Here it is again. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Well, that is a really another stout passage as well. But it also pushes us to be reconciled instead of acting in anger. God bless you, and uh, let us live faithfully this coming week.